Passero, career consultant working in careers, employability and student enterprise. And I'm Daisy Victoria, second year politics and international relations student here at the University of Southampton. For this third episode of the Class Ceiling podcast, we spoke to Professor Chris Downey, Associate Dean Education for the Faculty of Social Sciences, whose research interests centre around the social context of education developing our understanding of the relational capital of students, educators and educational leaders. Chris is interested in researching the role of the support networks of students around key transition points in their studies and particularly fascinated by the roles of those who span the boundaries that exist between groups and communities. We also spoke to Michelle Lynn and Shannon Brazil, both fellow undergraduate students and passionate members of our social mobility network here at the University of Southampton and Social Mobility Network staff member, Chanel Monarch, who shared her unique perspective of working and living in the University of Southampton community area. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy the third episode of our Class Ealing podcast. We hope you enjoy listening and that some of the subjects we cover will help and support an increased sense of inclusion and belonging among staff and students at University of Southampton. Uh, hi everyone, welcome and thank you for your time today. Welcome to a special episode of the Class Ceiling Podcast. Are you ready to start? Ready. Ready. <laughs> Good. What does the term social mobility mean to you? How can you relate to the term and how do you feel the term fits into your own experiences of university? To me, social mobility is the idea that we're all pre-assigned to a certain social status by our background, our family, but that I see it as something more like a ladder that we can climb up and down from. It's not really a platform that we're stuck on, but a ladder that we can move up and down in. And with that comes feeling comfortable in yourself and feeling proud of your background and all of that. But it's definitely The key is the mobility part that you're able to move around with the social stratus. For me, I come from a low income background family. My parents migrated here before I was born and I have two siblings. My parents, they don't speak fluent English. They're not confident with their English. So growing up, I had to assist quite a lot with that and They struggled to help me with my homework from around year six, so they they didn't. And so studying was quite challenging growing up for me. But hey, I'm a first generation university student now. Um, I'm currently studying biomedical sciences at Southampton going into my second year. And it's all worked out. And I'm really excited to see what the future holds for me. Chanel. Do you think that there's a dominant culture in higher education? And how do you think the British class system influences this? Yeah, absolutely. From my personal experience, I never actually thought that I would get the job here just from even starting from the basics of what I had to jump through to get the job in education. But definitely when I got here, it was clearly evident to me that everybody here was so much more different to me. They spoke different, they had different backgrounds, everybody was educated to a point of even college, university, etc. Whereas I never did any of that. You know, I was born on the estate and I came straight out of school, went straight to work. That was what was important. That was what I was told meant values from the family point. You know, you need to go and earn a living, you need to take care of yourself, etc. Because you can't depend on your parents. But Everyone here was definitely a lot different to me and that was very evident and it made me almost take on an appearance of something that I wasn't, which is really weird because a lot of people see me as totally different to how I am. Yeah, I think 
in a way that the way that we're tackling the class system now is things like this, is more discussions saying that it's okay to be different. It doesn't matter that you talk different because just because of the way I dress or talk doesn't influence the job and my abilities, the way I do my role. I'm very capable. I just I just don't feel that, like that. And that is purely because of my background and the way that I got here. Chris, I'd be really interested to hear your views on if you think there is a dominant culture in higher education and how does that relate to the British class system? Yeah. I think a lot would depend on whether we talk about higher education in general or particular parts of the sector. So where higher education is more selective, let's say, then there's no doubt that that's going to create a pressure for people from a particular background. If you need to be academically successful, whatever that means and the ways in which we measure that, and of course all of that is something that we, we could debate at length, there's no doubt there's quite clear connections you know, for many, many years now between having a certain amount of access to affluence and a whole bunch of supporting mechanisms and capital that allows you to be academically successful. And so where higher education is more selective, then that's likely to just, you know, kind of entrench some of those differences that we see in society that begin to emerge earlier on in education. I think what I can say from personal experience is looking back to my own time as a university student, when the level of participation in higher education was much lower. And so in a sense, the whole sector was more selective. It, things feel very different now. And I, I think that's a substantial step. But I think we need to be more nuanced in the way we kind of look at things and not necessarily think the university sector is all homogenous, but there's going to be some key differences. Some of those are regional, some of those are to do with selection. And so any policy making that we have about change needs to reflect some of that nuance and be focused there. Because if we treat the whole sector in the same way, we're, we're going to miss out on just huge efforts that are going on in certain places to really make a difference in terms of saying, well, the dominant culture is one of fairness and one of equity. And of course, that's something that we'd all want to aspire to. That is such a good point. I think the further we get into this podcast, we're on wrapping and taking the layers of the onion with more clarity because the culture is on a spectrum isn't it from old polys to oxbridge the culture is going to be different michelle you've spoken a little bit about your own background and about your parents as well to what extent do you think class is hereditary and why do you think so many of us inherit the same economic conditions as our parents i think honestly unfortunately it's to quite a high extent and that it's difficult to get out of like being in the same social wrong as our parents just because I feel like they shape our world quite a lot in the sense that the way that they see the world is much how we end up seeing the world as well how our world gets painted just because so much of our time is spent with our parents right and there was an exact moment where that became clear to me as well, because I recall this moment when I asked my friend, how can he speak so confidently? How can he speak so fluently? And I really struggle to, you know, feel confident when I am speaking and I feel like I don't present myself the way that I want to, etc. And he was like, to me, it, it comes across to him naturally, because when he was younger, his parents used to read to him before bed, um, so he gets bedtime stories, and for me, I never got that. And he also said that his parents are know quite a lot of other people and he'd be taken to these social gatherings and that he'd meet different people and that's how he connected and got to like develop the way he spoke and it, it comes to him naturally it makes sense right because he grew up finding it usual to talk to different people and to understand in a certain way which I did not get exposed to so, yeah, I do feel like parents really shape how your world gets formed and the kind of connections you make. And 
things like the way you speak. That's so, so interesting because it leads on to our next question beautifully, actually. The question is to Shannon and it's given what Michelle's just shared with us in terms of her experience of other people and Mm. language and growing up, is education really the great social leveller, Shannon? Well, I think it has a potential to be a social leveller, but unfortunately, with the way that it's distributed across the country, I don't think we're at that position yet, purely because there are some areas that have a kind of higher standard of education, like predominantly like in the South versus the North, there's like a clear divide, even like the Southwest compared to the Southeast, there's still a divide there. So I think fundamentally education is a way to bridge certain social gaps. But I don't think we're at the point yet, which I think we can be. And I think there's been some clear progress, but I don't think we're at the point yet where it is the great social leveller that, it's kind of presented to be, unfortunately. And Chris, you might actually have some information about how that looks on the ground. Yeah, I, I'm I'm quite pessimistic about this because I, I think, you know, when you think back to where formal education has its roots and it really was, it always intended to be a social levelling endeavour. And I think most people who work in education have a sense of vocation And part of that is about seeing a a more equal society and giving people opportunities and building up our assets rather than focusing on our deficits. There's just years of research in many, many countries, particularly with quite developed education systems, that if the improvements are there in terms of producing a more level playing field, they're really hard to win. And we don't really close gaps they if we do a bit of gap closing it gets stuck and then things tend to open up again and and gaps if between different groups of people get wider and despite you know policy change um, and strong intent from people working in education this seems to be really kind of baked into the system and that's tough. And, I, you know, I hate being a pessimist. I really don't. But you've, when you've got years and years of evidence that suggests the disparities almost feel as if they're, they're part of the system, we really do need to think about really creative ways in which we can break out of that mould. I'm so excited about higher education as an opportunity and picking up on the on the things that Chanel and Michelle and Shannon have said, because and, and my own experience as a kind of first generation in higher education student, that university is a place where you get the chance to mix a lot more than you would, I think, at any other level of education, because most of us go to schools that are kind of fairly bounded to our local community. And if we live in a fairly affluent community, then the pupils that we we learnt with are going to reflect that. But university can be different. And I think there's tremendous power there and I think with the kind of raising the proportion of folk who go into higher education and just having more of those opportunities to mix but it puts a huge responsibility on us then to really find ways in which we make that difference and I I think we need to encourage people not to feel like they have to go up levels socially and I, I think we need to find ways to improve people's economic assets and about quality of life but there'd be cultural things we all have wherever we feel we are on the ladder or the levels. And I think those are precious to us and we ought to celebrate them and hold on to them. And where we do have the chance to mix and explore some of the other levels, we can take what's good and kind of mix it in with the things that we're proud to hold on to from our own background. That leads on to Daisy's next question brilliantly, but I I think Shannon wants to say something first. I just wanted to say that I completely agree with the idea that we shouldn't really view it as kind of going up it should be more of a respecting and being proud of where you come from and your class because I think this kind of adding like a morality to it and thinking that working class is lower and middle class is upper and kind of viewing it like that it furthers the disparities that already exist so I think it's really important that you highlighted that um, instead of viewing it as a sort of like you go from the bottom to the top because at its core that's not what social mobility is it's about creating a better future for yourself and a better future for the future generations so I think it's really important to highlight that as well that's amazing thank you 
Chris, given your thoughts on how working class identity could kind of be celebrated and integrated into the higher education environment, I take it you would believe that um, it's a positive ambition for universities to have a more working class identity. I really like this question when I when I had a look at it. And I, I think I have mixed feelings about that because my personal sense is always we should look to, you know, celebrate the, the richness that we have across the different backgrounds that all of our students come from. And so having a particular focus in one area kind of sends off warning signals for me. So I would really love us as a sector and as an in individual institutions to have a reputation for being compassionate and caring about our community and thinking about ways in which we celebrate the diversity that we have and not necessarily building a particular identity that, you know, if you're from a particular background, you're going to find a home here. We want you to feel that if you're from any background, you find find a home here and you're going to find people like you and people who care about you and people who will support you. So I have mixed feelings about it. I know, I know the intention by that kind of developing a reputation for being really supportive of people from a particular background. But I think if we can find ways to really level things in terms of whoever you are, wherever you come from, you'll find a welcome here. That, I think, would be a better reputation to have. This issue is something that we struggle with in the social mobility network. You know, it can be quite reductive if you kind of start to think about emblems of being working class. You know, what are they? And they're different for millions of people. And the population is predominantly working class. So how can you be reductive about your identity, really? Okay, here's one of my favourite questions. I'm going to pose this to Chanel first. How important are accents for those on a social mobility journey? Yeah, I think it is quite important because personally, I feel that you or individuals, then you kind of look down upon if you talk differently or people notice it more. And I definitely feel that working here in, in education that I needed to speak differently. And when I first come here, I did try and, and talk more posher. And, you know, it was more about the pronunciation of words and things like that. So I did, I did personally struggle because I feel that I have a limited vocabulary. It's not a language barrier for me. It's just the way that I was taught and the way that I understand words and it really baffles me that within this institution we use so many but like we've got this I call it corporate speech of the way that we speak and I think that that's very off-putting even down to you know people applying to come to university or people individuals who want to come and work here because just the terminology of how somebody understands the way things are written is different for everybody and certainly for me you know, I really struggle to interpret how things are written. And quite often I have to say to people, what does that mean? Or, you know, I have to go and research, you know. I remember in your first podcast and the, and the VC and he said the word meritocracy. And I was like, geez, what's that? Like, and I had to I had to Google it to find out what it was. So, but now I don't worry too much because I kind of feel like, you know, I've been here long enough now, 10 years, I'm fully established and in. And in so I don't worry about it too much. But that's only come across for me really... Uh, recently and that's just because I've been on a little personal journey to figure out who I was and actually becoming more part of networks and things like that and understanding that there's a whole little mini sector of us inside this institution that we will talk like that and it's all right to say in it and sometimes get things wrong or not understand what someone says there are so many of us and I, I feel relieved when someone's got bad grammar as I have, because I feel uh, there's a little bit of pressure gone for me to be self-conscious when I'm speaking. It, it, it makes me less eloquent. It makes me more nervous. If, if you can just be yourself and not worry, I say int it and I get the side eye, you know, oh, int it, <laughs> you know, and um, if you can just be yourself and use um, your own demeanour, surely it's more productive. Yeah. You're more productive in your role. Um, Michelle, I know that you've spoken about accents before in yeah. the social mobility network. What, how important are accents for those on a social mobility journey? 
And actually, Heather, I'm the same as you. Whenever this question comes up, I always really, I'm always really excited about it. It's one of my favorite questions as well because after listening to Chanel, it's like you know, I can relate. I feel like we've all kind of had that little debacle, you know, with accents, like us feeling like we should need to speak a certain way, wanting to feel similar to others and wanting to change the way we speak in order to feel like we fit into a certain group. For me, I've had the experience of getting told I have, you know, a Chinese accent and me being in a British school, being the only Chinese student there, that stuck with me all the way until now. Um, Bear in mind that comment was made when I was in year three, I think. (laughs) And then since then, I've just been, you know, really focused on, oh, maybe I do sound Chinese when I say this word. Um, I need to speak in a more British manner. So I spelled, I sound British. And also, you know, being able to use certain vocabularies, that was um, that was what I wanted to touch upon, actually, Chanel, because I feel like I have a similar trouble that my vocabulary library is quite limited. And I feel like I want to constantly expand it and add into it. But it is exhausting. I agree with you, Heather. Like, it's not productive worrying so much about how you appear to others and how you speak and trying to speak in a way so that you feel like you're alike to everyone else because one come on that's a bit boring isn't it if everyone talks the same way like what is that are we robots all from a factory you know what it's it's crazy because it's always the people who are really good at getting the point across the best I know, which is you in the social mobility network, Chanel in meetings at work, get your point across better than anyone else in the room. And perhaps because that's because you've had to work harder at that as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you about that. But then, and I also just want to add on the second point, which brings us back to one of the early episodes where you interviewed VC. And he was like, what's important isn't how you say it, but really what you say. As long as you get your point across, that's what should matter, not really how you say it. Absolutely. Do you know what, though? I just want to say that kind of like comment there. The thing is, is I would then often say to people, does that make sense? Because then I'm questioning myself, actually, did I make sense what I just said? Because you know what I mean? I don't know whether I use the right terminology or not. So I am second guessing myself if I just blurt it out and just get get on with it. Whereas sometimes I'd like to sit there and actually think about what I said. The amount of times that I have like audience inhibition because I'm about to speak and think, am I going to say it right? Am I going to get it wrong? Is anyone going to understand me? And that's just like, that's, that's a nightmare in itself. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I really like that question because I I can relate so much. I feel like everyone can just relate. And Chanel, I can just, I feel the same. You're not the only one, is what I want to say. Chanel, given that you've spoken about how you do question yourself and you did feel the initial need to assimilate and maybe change that way that you speak, do you feel like you suffer from imposter syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've said this for so long and I think that's still because I, whether that's because I can't, still can't quite accept other people who are saying, but you do belong here, you do have the right to be here, and you're doing fantastic, but I feel like I'm not supposed to have my job. It's just, I don't know whether that's because it's it's like a confidence thing, but I kind of feel that the way that I've progressed through the university, which really was kind of like through merit, in a way of showing that I was capable of doing my role, I still feel like I'm not supposed to be here because I'm so different from everybody else. That's the way I see myself. I'm constantly thinking, okay, well, they're all completely different to me. I still feel like that I'm not deserving of this just because I'm I'm not educated like everybody else. I mean, I, I, I mean, social mobility network members will be really familiar with my view on imposter syndrome I I think it's such a powerful bit of gaslighting that's been you know it's a pseudo-scientific and it's not it's not a syndrome you know it's something that journalists have made up to make people 
feel like they they've got a confidence problem when it's you're in an environment where you feel different so you don't have a sense of belonging you know and uh, I think you know it, I think it can be a proxy for classism for sure and and and, and sexism as well actually there's a a big issue with women feeling, you know, they're not good enough, I shouldn't be here. I really hope that the narrative on imposter syndrome, you know, this fake thing, I'm not saying that you don't think, experience those things, Chanel. I just think the reasons that were sold are kind of a bit of brainwashing, really. I think the system needs to change, not individuals. It's a lot to do with education as well, because if you think about in the top schools, like private schools and colleges, maybe places like Eastern, they're being taught to be leaders. Like they're being, when they're being guided in their education, they're being guided to be bosses, not to be, you know, not to work for other people. They're guided to go into politics. We're in schools in like more deprived areas that have less funding. So we're not really expected to go to these places. We're not taught we're going to be leaders. We're not taught that we're going to be in politics. We're not taught that we could be prime minister one day. We're taught to be workers. Our options are very limited for us so it's, I think it's to do with like it's systemic it really is and it's a lot to do with education I think we need to work towards offering the same opportunities and the same encouragement that they do in private schools to their kids and the same expectations and offering them to kind of children and adults in education from more disadvantaged backgrounds. Daisy it's really interesting you say that because I, I can remember doing some research work um, with young people in a fairly sort of isolated community it was still in the the south of England but I'm trying not to be too specific but it was kind of geographically isolated a bit and trying to think about you know when you fit when you finish school what is it that you're looking forward to doing and thinking about you people's hopes and what what they I'm trying to avoid using the word aspiration for a particular reason here you can tell can't you and I think what was really interesting to me thinking about what guided people's choices is just how some of those messages that come from educators are really important. And I, and it makes me sad because almost by definition, teachers are the success stories of the education system because you have to get academic qualifications to be able to then be a teacher in a classroom. And, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I think you should have that academic competence when you go into to be a teacher. But yeah, our, our experience, therefore, has been quite limited when we're classroom teachers. And yet, if people are looking to us for careers advice, we kind of only really have known one kind of walk of life. And that's education, education, education as a kind of as a student and then as as a, an employee. And I think we make the worst careers advisors in the world. So why anyone would look to a teacher for careers advice, I don't know. That's a pretty strong statement on my part. But I've heard enough absolutely harrowing careers advice and lack of advice that have come from teachers to really make me scared if teachers are being relied upon. Now, I know all of that can change and I'm being very generalist there, but I think teachers need an awful lot of training and support to then move to being good careers advisors because you know, our, our experience as educators has been so narrow, so gobsmackingly narrow. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you are that I am a career consultant working in careers oh. employability and student yes. enterprise. And I completely agree that, you know, perhaps employability and, and careers education isn't taken seriously as as, as a core subject, actually, um, in ter- especially when you get to year 11, year 12 and, you, and career planning more than anything. I completely agree with that. Shanna, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you. How important is lived experience, do you think, to get buy-in for a cultural shift? So things like this podcast or changing the narrative in journalism, how important is that to creating a shift? I think lived experience is probably the main reason why I have any sort of sense of like cultural competence in any way, because I've grown up in East London and I've been around like a lot of different people who have had different life experiences, different cultures. And I think that that lived experience is pretty much the main thing that has made me come to university with an open mind. And I think it is probably the most important thing to either have some lived experience yourself or have sort of channels where you can communicate with people, because not everyone is going to grow up in an area where there are different cultures 
in the same place. So I think in those cases, it still should be a situation where you are introduced to different people and have different speakers who can kind of give you a sense of perspective, because I do think that is like the main like kind of driver for cultural competence is just experiencing it yourself, really. Yeah, and having access to those narratives as well. I mean, we can kind of complain about how people see us, but then what are they being told about us? You know, what do they know that working class people, you know, do this? They're like football or, you know, karaoke or something like that. And it's, yeah, it's just too reductive. Issue. Yeah, Yeah, I think the issue is that um, a lot of people will get their kind of understanding of especially class through media and through kind of things that they consume like for me personally like in uni I've met a lot of people who they know East London from TV they know East London from EastEnders so they have their like kind of preconceptions about me before I've even told them anything other than my name and where I'm from and I think that is like such a fundamental issue that is kind of it spreads across universities but also just across society wide like a lot of people get their kind of information through places that don't really have a kind of like holistic view of people and I think true yeah I mean god knows I love Coronation Street but it's got a lot to answer for because there's not a week goes by that someone doesn't make that reference to me so I'm going to ask this question is for both Shannon and Chanel so do you I think we have already touched on this quite a bit but I guess We'll just kind of reiterate the point because I feel like it's something that's important to all of us. Do you feel like we should not be encouraging working class people to assimilate into a dominant middle class culture if there is one at university? And do we think that working symbols of working class culture should be protected and maintained within these environments? I think it is 100% important to view being working class as a kind of badge of honour and something that you shouldn't feel like you need to change it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about um, morality a lot of people think that being working class is something that you have to work out of and progress into something else but I think that view in itself is dangerous it's dangerous to hold that view that being working class is something that you should assimilate to someone else you should change who you are because you shouldn't and I think for me like what is most important is solidarity between working class people that's where you see the most change. Like even with like, we see it now, like with labour strikes and things like that. Like when people come together and there's a lot of manpower, like towards one thing, that's when you see the most change. And I think that if we view working class as something that you should be working your way to get out of, it kind of takes away the power that the working class have, which is already minimal, really, as we've seen. But I think it's important to kind of create an environment where there is solidarity and being working class is a badge of honour. And can we point out classism as it occurs, Shannon? I definitely think we should. I think this is probably the one of the best ways to change how people view things and change alter people's prejudices. Like when someone says something that is classes, it can be a learning opportunity. It doesn't have to be something that keeps continuing to happen I think it is a perfect chance for you to turn around and say actually that view that you have is prejudice and this is where that could stem from and this is actually the real situation and I think it's extremely important to point out classism because otherwise how are we going to change people's attitudes if we just kind of allow them to say whatever they want and make these sort of like clumsy statements about class Um, I think the more we allow that, the more the views become entrenched in society. So I think it's definitely really important to point out classes. Chanel, do you have any views on that? Yeah, I do think it's it's important because I'm proud of where I've come from and my background now, even though in the beginning, you know, I may well have tried to hide it. But I do think it's important to let people know that actually, you know, I'm just as important as you are, regardless of where I've come from or, or where, where my family's come from. And because personally, I feel that, you know, I, I might not be educated, but I'm I've got a lot of lived experience. You know, I could seriously make people gasp at the life that I've had and the experiences that I've had and the traumas and the struggles. You know, literally, I could write a book and, and I'm sure it would be a bestseller because, you know, I've had that much of a great life. But it's just like I, re- I recall once when we were organising a team meeting and a certain 
person within the team told me that why would I want to come to work in my tracksuit and trainers for a meeting when actually I found that incredibly insulting because what why would why would I not like what what's that got to do with how I do my job but you know that particular person thought that just because I wasn't dressed like her or I didn't have the same view that actually everybody here should be dressed very corporately very you know in a suit and tie etc that 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 was the way it had to be so that's funny because Daisy has had that, that same judgment in a different environment actually Chris, social class is unfortunately not a protected characteristic under the Equality Act 2010. Do you think it should be? I could see advantages where it would be. And I think that capacity then to be able to say, right, we're taking really clear steps here to make make a difference in our community. And it helps add that to the, the list of characteristics that we need to be aware of and take care of. And I think that could be a, a positive thing. I guess part of me always yearns for the point in life where we don't have to have protected characteristics because that's not a requirement anymore. But I absolutely see the purpose that they they can serve. And I think it's really interesting with one in social class because I think it sweeps across so many different sectors of society in a way that some of the other pre- protected characteristics don't so much and that might sound bizarre because actually you know, some of the protected characteristics take up pretty large chunks of society and and I think part of that just reflects just how sophisticated thinking about class can be and I I guess if people are using it in a way which actually gets some good outcomes and is about making sure that people are showing awareness where they should I'm all for that but when it starts to slip away from that, I think I think I'd have more concerns about seeing social class as a protected characteristic. I think that's the thing. Class is intersectional. So as you said, it sweeps across many different sectors of society. So a lot of these groups that um, are protected under the Equality Act, a lot of them are going to be working class. And sometimes I don't, I don't I'm probably going to explain this terribly, but the, the two different identities are intertwined, they're interconnected and they feed into each other. So I personally do think class is very relevant and should be included. But I understand what you're saying is it's it's so much more wide sweeping and it's so much more included in it. Michelle and Chanel, how important is it for the university to work with local communities to encourage and widen participation? So from my point of view, Obviously, I live in the local community and have done all my life. So I think it's really important that the university starts with helping the community in whatever ways they can. And that actually, you know, by using the outreach teams, etc., going into schools and educating our children, because a lot of the times the presumed access of where children might think that they can go, et cetera, needs to come in from the schools because quite often the parents themselves haven't been through the education route. You know, they were living on the estate in areas of deprivation. There is quite a lot of struggle here right on the university's doorstep. So the more that it can lend a hand to the community, you know, like when it did the saliva testing, et cetera, the university got its name among you know, that helped keep our children at school. So it is really important that the university continues to do its work with the community. But I also think the university needs to kind of work on its image a little bit more as well, just to say that actually it is a place where everyone has access to, regardless of, you know, the amount of money you've got, where your mum and dad have have come from, etc., but I know that the university is trying anyway, so it is slow, but it's it's making the right steps. Chanel and I had a short conversation about this yesterday, and I was thinking about when I was growing up in Salford, and I would go into Manchester as these students in them days, you know, dressed like Morrissey and Doc Martins, and I thought, oh, that's what other people do. How, however, here there is a council estate right next to our institution. So it's that you know they're not travelling into town and dreaming of what other people do. It's rubbed in their faces right on their doorstep from one street to the next. Other people have this experience, and 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 not us. And I, I didn't think about that until yesterday. Afterwards, Chanel, it just seems even more cruel. 
I, I really agree. And I agree with what Chris said as well. You know, university is this, it's just so powerful. This place is so powerful. And I think it is important for us to be working with the community to really show what university is like. And especially to primary school, secondary school, younger children, that in order for it to be accessible to all, showing that it's not this foreign, untouchable place for several, because not every parent has been to university, being able to offer them that insight that, you know, this is what university is like, stuff like that. So it is important for the university to take steps to work with the community. And I mean, stuff like mentoring and even tutoring, you know, like I said, Previously, in one of my answers, my parents struggled to support me beyond year six maths, things like that. And I think it works really well because students in university are able to relate to certain students and it works better when you're able to relate to them. And mentoring and also shadowing schemes, these like programs, they're not like impossible and they'll work really really well in order to make it make university a more accessible place and no longer seem so foreign and scary and beyond that I feel like to work for post uni stuff as well so I mean like internship and work experiences for the students within the university so that it could really be that bridge for social mobility that's brilliant. Thanks, Michelle. Shannon, what, why do you think that graduates from non-traditional backgrounds, um, for want of a better description, very often earn less in their first graduate role? I think it's really, this is a really important question to ask, and I'm really glad that you have, because it's such a massive problem. Like, you just have to look at some of the top positions in companies and in the government. They are pretty much dominated by people who are privately educated, or their parents went to university and they've come from generations and generations of people who are higher educated. And I think the, one of the main issues is that a lot of people who are working class don't have the connections that middle class people have from a young age. So it's not as if you can kind of ask your parents, oh, I want to get into, I want to become a lawyer. Can you call your friend who's a lawyer and get me an internship? Like you don't have that same kind of channel so it is all sort of out of your hard work really and I think that one of the issues and one of the ways that we sort of need to tackle this kind of like what Michelle said is mentoring people especially when they're young because there's already a gap between how the government labels it disadvantaged and advantaged pupils at key stage one and that is when you're like five years old there's already a, a disparity there so I think to kind of tackle this gap in pay between sort of working class and non-working class graduates is a lot of kind of mentoring and making sure the attainment gap is smaller at a young age than it kind of ripples on through when you're older and also just creating like a safe learning environment. I think people sort of underestimate the resources that the middle classes have and how important that is to kind of become educated to kind of educate yourself and to get into these higher positions like if you are going through school and you don't have a lot of people don't have a desk in their house a lot of people don't have a library in their school so with those sort of things it's like people sort of like to think of it on like a, a grand scheme of like oh well you know if you work hard and you go to school and then you you go to university that will get you that position it's so much more complex than that so I think it's really just like looking at the younger generation and encouraging creating safe spaces really like libraries and places in inside the school environment and kind of giving them a safe learning space to kind of learn things and also kind of not putting such a weight on having outside connections because I do think that's a massive problem that continues this class divide is the fact that middle class people have a lot more connections that can kind of get them into these graduate positions that they want so I think kind of those two things are kind of my how in an ideal world we would solve this gap. 
That's great. And and Chris, you say, it kind of links with what, with what you were saying earlier, Chris, about being pessimistic in a in a reluctant way because education, you know, the the writing is on the wall that it's not become a great social leveller. Those from non-traditional backgrounds haven't benefited as much as those who, what we call traditional backgrounds, again, for want of a better phrase. Are we just playing the long game? Well, I think Shannon's absolutely right in that, you know, there's lots of evidence to suggest if we can focus attention in narrowing those gaps at a younger age, it, that really is where the potential for levelling is strongest. And yet it's really, really difficult to do. I don't know. I've never met a primary teacher that doesn't care passionately about seeing all of their students do well and thrive. And yet it is so difficult to achieve that lovely level playing field that we're we're really looking for. And and I guess part of that is the way in which assessment works, because one of the things that we always say assessment's meant to do is to discriminate, you know, give us a bit of a profile that says, these are the the ones that get the highest attainment and these are the ones who get the lowest. So in a sense, it, difference will always be baked into the system. And that's something that we need to think about as well, because you could say, well, what's the point of trying then if actually we really are trying to make sure that everybody gets the same kind of educational asset and leaves with the same kind of entitlement that they can then carry forward? when actually the system is also trying to separate people out and say, you're the really, really good ones and you're the not so really good ones, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there is a long game to play there and to look out for those things that are baked into the system that are always going to try and exploit difference and say, really, is that is that the way that we need to work? And that's challenging because actually there are so many things that we're wedded to in education as the way to do things and we don't necessarily always stop and recognize some of the unintended or maybe intended but not so obvious consequences of what we do and that that's a challenge and I think the other thing that Shannon talked about in terms of having access to people who have experience and I think in linking to that outreach work Chanel that you were talking about I think you know it's it's terrific if a university is able to say if you've got young people in a school who are in need of support, then if you feel, and if that young person feels that that support's going to come to them best from someone who looks like them, sounds like them, acts like them, we can do our level best to find someone who will be able to match. Because you know, by definition, when you're giving young people extra support to raise educational attainment, there's a challenge baked in there already. If the extra challenge is thinking, oh, yeah, but that's all well and good. But because of the way you speak or the way you look, I'm never going to be able to achieve what you've achieved. If we can get rid of that hurdle, then we can focus down on the ones that that, that really hopefully can make a difference. I definitely agree with that, because in my experience of primary education, I had kind of a dual experience. I was simultaneously one of the top students in English and one of the bottom students in maths. So I got extra coaching because I was good at English. And in this extra coaching, the, it was only a like, handful of students, maybe about like five to eight, maybe, who were like having this extra time to be educated, like practically one on one, like it's a lot smaller classes. But then for the subject that where we were struggling, there was class sizes of like 20 people doing the extra help. So I just noticed even like the standard of education, they were kind of seem to be funneling more time into the people they knew were going to do well. And I don't think they have those same expe- expectations for all their children. And I don't think they expect them more um, to achieve the same. So I definitely agree with that. Yeah, that because I feel like we haven't really touched on primary education at all, but it really, it really does start from then. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I, I always hate the term gifted and talented. I think it should be scrapped because it suggests mm-hmm. everyone else is bland and useless. You know, I'm not part of being gifted or talented. I'm something else, and you know, you presume you're the opposite. Chris, do you think the issue of class needs to be tackled separately, or can it can it be tackled alongside other topics of diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I, th- I think it needs to be a, a dual approach. And I think we talked before about the intersectionality for the kind of social background and how it weaves its way through some of the other characteristics that we've been talking about. So so if you can have a dual focus and say, right, we, we're going to have a particular spotlight on the social background that people are coming from, while at the same time recognising the complexity of it, 
and how what it means to be from different backgrounds if you then mix that in with other characteristics and again we've got we've got lots of evidence and research to support how those complexities work themselves out in different cultural backgrounds or by sex and gender then there's lots of opportunity there to look for ways to say that we've got that two-pronged approach i think taking just one or the other wouldn't wouldn't cut it really and I'm going to end on a positive, actually, and we're just going to open up and ask if employers and universities are waking up to the unique attributes of working class students and graduates. Yeah, I think they are. From my role and how we are being approached more often from employers who are looking at diversity and inclusion as one of their like main targets, there's definitely evidence now that says that to have a a great mixture of uh, individuals and their abilities um, and their backgrounds that actually set a a more productive environment you know you don't want everybody to be the same like Michelle said earlier that would be boring if everybody was the same Um, you know a clock doesn't work because it's made of all the same pieces there are lots of little individual working clogs within there that make that system go round and do its job and so therefore that's the same as it should be in the working environment and in education too so I definitely think that these conversations are going on now and that it is important to have this diversity. Can I just say thank you so much for such colourful insight it's quite difficult on teams we normally record in person you've all been so generous with your views and your experience and knowledge and expertise Thank you so much for taking part in the Class Ceiling podcast. Thank you. It's been really good to hear from you all. Like, really good, yeah. <laughs> the Class Ceiling podcast. Smashing the Class Ceiling. <laughs>